for most of, many of you I know, and some of you I, I don't know. And I know something that is true about every single one of us that is in the room or for those of you that are joining us online, and it's this, that there are two categories of people who have influenced your life the most and made you who you are today. The teen you are, the single adult you are, the husband or wife you are at this point, two categories of people who have made you the father or the mother that you are uh, today who most set you up to either be struggling or be successful in your dating relationships, your work relationships, your ability or your lack of ability to relate with others successfully. And those two categories of people did not influence and impact your life based on what they believed or even whether or not they were religious. The two categories of people who had the most to do with who you are today is those who hurt you deeply and those who loved you profoundly. Those who hurt you and those who loved you. And when I say those two things, already there are names and faces of people coming to mind that hurt you or loved you. And, you know, when you find yourself in counseling because you bump up against something that you just can't quite get through, a good counselor will take you where? To the past and to those two categories. And the thing that is so tragic to me, especially in what I do, is that many of you and many people in culture have been hurt deeply by people who had accurate theology, people who believed the right things, who never missed a Sunday in church, who knew every chapter and verse, people who from the outside looked like good, fine, upstanding citizens, but behind the scenes, they just eroded the life out of you. They crushed your soul. They maybe set you up for an adult experience that in certain areas of your life or your life as a whole, it's been painful, it's been difficult. In fact, you might feel like you're constantly trying to get over what you experience, trying, constantly trying to move past, to compensate, not for someone's theology or whether your parents were Christians or believed in the Bible, but because you were hurt deeply. There are pastors and priests with impeccable theology, who are in prison because they hurt children. They have impeccable theology. And it wasn't about that. It was about the way they treated them. And we started this series eight weeks ago because if we pay attention, increasing numbers are abandoning and rejecting what we call Christianity. Gen X or Gen Y and Gen Z, they're increasingly avoiding it altogether. But because as one author described it, Christianity is a quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. That's a mouthful. And we talked about how around the fourth century, there was a huge shift away from what we've termed the forgotten way. And people began to settle for Christianity, and we've suffered the consequences ever since. And part of our problem is for most of us, we are known as, or we call ourselves Christians. But as we've discovered, the term Christian only appears three times in the whole Bible, and it was a derogatory term used by those outside the faith to describe this group of people that were Jesus followers. And so consequently, the term Christian isn't defined anywhere in the Bible, which means as history and current day has proven out that you can call yourself a Christian and do and believe just about anything. 
There are Christians on both sides of every single political and social issue. Christians can justify going to war with one another. So there's no wonder we have a branding and an image problem. And today, the impression of the next generation, especially your kids and your grandkids, this is their impression. The impression is that Christians are judgmental, homophobic, moralists who think they are the only ones going to heaven and secretly relish the fact that everyone else is going to hell. And for many of us, that immediately brings up a defense in us. Like we want to argue terminology. We definitely want to get into a dust-up over the term homophobic. But the problem is anyone with a smart device can pull up millions of quotes and pictures and statements and sermons and social media posts and historical facts to back up their assessment. And we want to point out all the good things advancements, powerful social justice and compassion work that has been done under the banner of Christianity. But as I said a few weeks ago, to the current generation, we sound like a wife abuser who, after abusing and even beating his wife when she objects, points to all the good things that he does to distract from the evil that he's inflicted. And, and while incredible good has been done under the banner of Christianity, I don't deny that unimaginable evil has also been done under that same banner of Christianity. And by identifying as Christian, we have to then attach ourselves to the full history of Christianity. But as we open the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the accounts of Jesus' life, we discovered that Jesus never referred to his followers as Christians. He referred to them as disciples, a very narrowly defined term clarifying what you are to believe and do and specifically how you are to treat other people. And at the very end of about three years of teaching and telling parables and preaching sermons and performing miracles, all, the thi- all of these things, Jesus is, he cl- gathers his closest followers together and he boiled down his entire ministry to this. By this, by this thing, everyone will know that you are my, here's our word, disciple, follower, learner, by this one thing. If you love one another, not look at what they believe. I want people to look at you and identify you based on one thing, the extraordinary way you treat each other and the extraordinary way you treat other people. One day Jesus was teaching, some people came up to him, and they asked Jesus a great question. In fact, if you're someone who believes in God, this is a question you should want the answer to. See, for the average American, not just Ameri- average American, not just American Christian, if you approach them or in a conversation, if you ask them if they believe that they're going to heaven when they die, the majority of Americans would say yes. And then if you ask them why they believe that, they'd say, well, because I try to be a good person, you know, some version of that, which then begs the question, well, how good is good enough? I mean, I did a whole message on this two years ago because there's something about our human nature that wants to know what gets me the most points with God, what makes me, gets me enough points that I get in. So these men come to Jesus, and they ask Jesus a great question. Jesus, of all of the law and commandments, which is the greatest? See, the Jews had 613 Mosaic laws. They had the top 10, and Jesus replied, the greatest is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And then the second is like it, as in as important as the first one. In fact, you cannot do the first one without doing the second one. And the second one is like it. 
love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says something of such extraordinary significance that somewhere along the way, the Christians forgot. All, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. 613 commandments, the top 10, all these things that will be added later by the writers of the New Testament, all the teachings of Scripture hang on these two commandments. So do you know what that means? It means every time you pick up a Bible or you open up a Bible app, and every time we're wrestling with this question, like, what should I do in this situation? What does it say about this? What does it say about that? What does it say about singleness? What does it say about dating? What does it say about my wife or my husband, about raising children? What does it say about money and morality and single sex and married sex and divorced sex and remarried sex and gay sex? What does it say about anything? Every time. We think about, reflect on, pick up the Scriptures to find a Scripture to instruct us and teach us in the way that we should go. Jesus says, make sure that you look at all of that through this filter. Love God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, don't use God's Word or don't use ignorance of God's Word because you choose not to read it, to avoid doing God's will. And don't ever use my law to unnecessarily hurt and disenfranchise people. And and this led us to a big question. It's a question that I gave you practically to try to live out every day in every situation. Last Sunday, I just asked that you would pause and ask the question each day in light of what Jesus has done for me, what does love require of me? In other words, if the big idea is people are going to know that I'm a Jesus follower by how I treat other people, especially other Jesus followers, I need to ask the question every single day of my friends, my single friends, my married friends, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my fiance, my parents, husband, wife, children, the people I work for, the people I work with. What does love require of me? And this, it is a game changer. Because most, most of the evangelical and Christian world over the past century or more, the tendency has been to look at the commands and forget the intent of the commander. For people who have been Christians a long time, their tendency and inclination is to pick up the Bible and use it kind of like a club instead of a light. Like, you've got to and you can't, and it says right here. And Jesus doesn't say, doesn't say that we shouldn't have those conversations. Don't hear me saying something that I'm not. The New Testament writers, Jesus, none of them say that we shouldn't have hard conversations and lean into things because we absolutely need to have hard conversations. There are things that need to be addressed, confronted, corrected. But Jesus says before you go there, first, you must ask yourself this question, what does it look like to love my neighbor as myself? In other words, how would I want someone to treat me? How would I want somebody to approach me, respond to me, act towards me? Then that's how I'm going to respond and react and act towards them. Jesus says, this is how they will know that you are my follower. And he could have said a lot of things. You know, they will know that you're my follower if fill in the blank. The brilliance of the statement is found in our own personal experience. Because some of you, you walked into adulthood with extraordinary self-esteem. 
esteem, an extraordinary outlook on life. You walked into adulthood with extraordinary potential because someone loved you profoundly. And how do you, and you know what? Their, their theology was probably not all that sophisticated. They probably did not know Hebrew and Greek, but they gave you something that set you up for success that goes far beyond theology and belief. They loved you visibly, in action. It may have been a parent, it may have been a coach, it may have been a principal or a teacher, or someone who just came alongside you, maybe as a teenager, maybe in your 20s, and they just poured into you. And maybe for the first time in your life, you experienced unconditional, sacrificial love. And eventually, you open up to someone about your life story, and just like me, you tell a story. And you tell a story of hurt, and you tell a story of love of individuals who it was beyond theology, it was beyond Christianity, it was beyond church attendance. You felt and experienced something with them that spoke directly to your soul. And now you as a single man or woman or you as a husband or wife, you do all of this. You do all of this out of doses of hurt and love. So let me put it this way. The, the way you have been treated in your life has more to do with who you are than what you believe. This is why what Jesus said was so extraordinarily profound. And that is why it is so important for those of us who say that we are his followers. Get this. Because somewhere along the way, the Jesus movement shifted from behave to believe. And when Jesus launched his movement, the forgotten way was all about how you love and yet over time, it became about what you believe. That is why we've been doing this series, why it's so important. Because if we would simply begin to do what Jesus said and did instead of arguing about what he said, things would change. If we would begin to simply do what Jesus did instead of arguing about what he said, things would change. The reputation of Christ followers would change. The influence of the church would change. Jesus did not say, a new command I give you, believe correctly. By this all men will know you are my disciples if you believe correctly. I mean, do you know how much time and energy and, and publishing has been spent in print and online and in social media and podcasts with people who say they follow Jesus arguing with each other about exactly what Jesus meant by what he said? If we want to know what Jesus meant by what he said, we simply need to look at what Jesus did because believing requires almost nothing. Behaving requires everything. And in the beginning, it was simple. Love one another. The question was always, what does love require of me? And because Jesus knew the heart of men and of women, every time Jesus interacted with someone, and I so wish that you would go home and read this for yourself, read the Gospels. Every time he interacted with someone, he interacted with them based on their story. And we've all had this experience, right? Right? All of us have had someone in our life that honestly, we just didn't like them. Like, like they got on your nerves, they're irritating, maybe it was a coworker or a fellow student or something. You know, we've all had this experience where their behavior, their choices, like make no sense to you. In fact, they're kind of offensive, but then one day, the day comes, you hear their story. And what happens? Suddenly things change. Like, oh, 
That makes sense. And every one of us in this room have had someone misjudge something we did or said and judged us. But then when they get the opportunity to hear our story, it's like, oh, then it makes sense to them. So with Jesus, it's like every single time he interacted with somebody based on their story. In fact, for some of you now, uh, some time now, uh, I've been on kind of a one-man mission to eliminate what's referred to as the fundamental attribution error. (laughs) This is the tendency that we all have to attribute the actions of others to their character and ignore the impact of situational factors in their lives. In other words, we judge the character of others while we give ourselves a pass based on circumstances. And we all are guilty of this. For example, if you see me yelling at my kids in a public place, well, I'm a bad parent. But if you're yelling at your kids in a public place, you give me the list of 21 other things that you've experienced with them today that led to this, circumstances that led to you having enough. So Jesus, however, every single time he interacted with an individual, he interacted with their story in mind. This is why Jesus seems so inconsistent. It's why he could be so fierce with one group and yet so compassionate with another one. He tells one rich guy, sell everything to follow him. He tells another rich guy, you're close. Then he tells another guy with 20 minutes left on the clock, like, hey, today you got nothing you can give. You're going to be with me in paradise today. Because they were different people with different stories and different paths. And Jesus didn't have a list of verses that he threw at every single person. Jesus' response is always to look at their story and ask, in light of who I am and in light of who they are, in light of what I've been through, in light of what they've been through, what does love require of me? Now, can you imagine what would happen in your family if this became the driving principle of every action, reaction, and word? Especially if both spouses decided to do this and then consistently lean into God for the wisdom and strength to do it. I'll tell you what will happen, and I've experienced this. Your relationship would transform beyond anything you could ask or imagine. You would begin to have other married friends come to you and say, what's up with you guys? Like, how do you guys do this? Like, you just seem to be, like, so in love. Like, you've been married too long to like each other that much, okay? Like, you just like, you, how do you do it? Let me flip it for some of you. Imagine if you could have grown up in a home like that. Imagine if you could have grown up with parents who loved one another and loved you with that kind of love. Imagine how different things might have been. Imagine if in your community, if in our nation, if those of us who name the name of Jesus would put down all of our weapons and our, our objections and our theological quirks and just decided for a month, a year, proactively. It's just simply, what does love require of me? And then do it. I mean, imagine, let's say in your life you did that and you impacted only one life, but then they live 50 more years. Do you realize what that means? You impacted 50 years of human history for a person and then everyone they interacted with. Let's multiply it by three. Let's say you impact personally three people in your life and then they each live 50 more years. You have impacted a cumulative 100 
and 50 years of human history in someone's life and everyone they have interacted with. I mean, just imagine the ripple effect. It's just like there are generational curses, there are generational blessings, which means that every single one of us, we have a decision to make. What do you want your impact and your influence on others to look like? Because whether you know it or not, you're impacting and influencing others. When they tell their life story and they name your name, whether it's this year, five years from now, 15 years from now, and they name your name, what do you hope for them to say? Because you have two options. You can hurt them deeply or you can love them profoundly. Those are your only two options. It's not, the way, it's not what you believe. It's how you treat them. So to help you with this, I just want to give you three statements to help us be disciples and not just Christians. Three statements. Don't do anything that will hurt you. Don't do anything that will unnecessarily hurt someone else. And don't be mastered by anything. Why? Well, because your Father loves you. So what does love require of you? First, love requires that you don't do anything to hurt you. Because your Father loves you. And you can't do anything to hurt you that doesn't hurt Him. Just like as a father of four sons, none of my sons at any stage of their life, including today, can hurt themselves without it hurting me. Why? Because I'm their dad and I love them. So what does love require of you? Love requires that you never make a moral decision, a sexual decision, an ethical decision, a relational decision, a financial or professional decision that hurts you because when you hurt you, you hurt the one and the ones who love you the most. You might say, well, that's just between me and me. No, it's not. It's not just between you and you because you are loved. It's not just your life. It's not just your world, your relationship, your profession, you know, your reputation. Your heavenly Father loves you. And love requires that you respond to His love by letting Him define what does it look like for you to care for you because He loves you. What else does love require of you? Love requires that you don't do anything that will unnecessarily hurt anyone else. I'm talking about interpersonal relationships. And the reason for the word unnecessarily is because sometimes love does require that we cause a little pain because we do need to address something that's uncomfortable but important. There's a proverb that says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. So sometimes showing love, it will hurt, but more like a medical treatment or shots hurt for a moment, but ultimately it's about doing a greater good or bringing about healing. If you're a good parent, you directly address certain behaviors in your children. How do you do that? Well, often it's by inflicting a small dose of controlled discomfort, but for their good, because you love them. Because if it's not cute at 16, it's not cute at two. And it's much easier to train a two-year-old than a 16-year-old. I'm talking about how regardless of how you feel, you just choose. Like, I'm just not going to do or say anything that unnecessarily hurts another person. But then if I do, because we all fail at this from time to time, that I'm going to own it. I'm going to seek forgiveness. I'm going to seek reconciliation. Why? Because everyone you see or interact with is someone who God loves as much as he loves you, even your worst enemy. 
The people who just can't stand you and that you can't stand, the people who have hurt you the most are people for whom Christ died. And I realize this is tricky and it's sometimes offensive, but it's tricky because it involves confession and confrontation and pain, which means loving the way you need to love is like taking out a scalpel but never a saw. That you decide the filter through which my words and actions will come out as one in which I'm not going to do anything to hurt, betray, deceive, tempt, abuse another person. I'm also never going to position myself to be a part of someone's regret story. And this can happen in many forms. But this is why, for example, when I, I talk a lot with, with young singles uh, and young couples about loving God's parameters for the expression of sexual intimacy. Because as a good, loving, heavenly father would do, he's trying to protect your heart and the heart of other people. That what love and honor requires is until I ultimately publicly commit and permanently lock all of me into the life of another person in marriage. What love requires is I wait. Why? Because this shows them the most honor. It prevents you from experiencing a false intimacy that forces you to relate and it forces you to relate in all the other areas that will determine the happiness of your relationship in the long run and the things that greatly determine the quantity and the quality of your sexual intimacy. It prevents you from becoming a regret story in somebody's life if you don't make it in this relationship. That when they finally meet the person that they will become their lifelong partner to and they have that conversation, you know, the sexual history one, that you won't be a part of that story as having taken something that ultimately belonged to someone else because they ended up with someone else. I've done around 150 weddings in my life. I do premarital counseling with every couple. We always talk about sex, sexual history, and I don't, you know what I've never heard from a bride or a groom? I've never heard, I'm just so happy I practice with other people. Like, I'm so happy that I slept with other people or that my fiancé slept with other people because after having sex with one or four or 20 or 40, like, guess what? I feel ready now. I've never heard that. You know I've heard every single time, whether agnostic or Christian or whatever, regret. Now that they've met the person they are going to marry, it's like, I, I wish I would have waited for them. I wish they were the only... I was the only one for them, and they, I for theirs. But at the time, it's just like all my friends were hooking up. It's just, it's just what my friends did, or I was just swiping right, swiping right, swiping right. I've, I've heard repeatedly, I wish I could go back and do things differently. I wish I would have waited. I wish you were the only one. And I share this example because not doing anything that hurts someone else is bigger than just not hurting their feelings. It's never, ever positioning yourself to become part of someone's regret story. A question that might hit closer to home for most of you is, think of your last disagreement that you had. Maybe it was with a friend, a coworker, a family member, your husband, your wife. And maybe, let's go ahead and give it to you. Maybe you were 100% correct, and they were 100% wrong, whatever the core issue. The big question is, as you reflect back on that disagreement and your frustration, maybe even your anger, did what love requires of you guide your temper and the words and actions that you chose? Or 
Did you opt to unnecessarily hurt another person because you needed to make sure that they knew clearly they were wrong and you were right? Did you choose words and actions out of love or did you choose words and actions because you decided they, they needed to feel bad? You're like, okay, Chad, now you're just meddling. Okay, maybe. Lastly, love requires you not be mastered by anything. You know why? Because whenever you're mastered by something, it means it and not Jesus is your master. You cannot live with two or more masters because if you try, it will keep you from loving God and keep you from loving others as you should. No one should have to compete with your anger. Nobody should have to keep with, try to compete with your passive aggressiveness. Nobody should have to compete with your alcohol, your prescription drug, or your porn addiction that you refuse to call an addiction. No one should have to compete with your temper or being mastered by your appetite. No one should have to compete with your obsessive compulsiveness. No one should have to compete with your overdrive or your laziness or your stubbornness or your greed or your willingness to neglect a relationship in order to accumulate and control as many green pieces of paper with dead presidents on them as you can. Refuse to be mastered by anything because God is your master. Love requires that you get rid of anything in your life that competes with his lordship in your life, anything. And in some cases, it's in any one. Somebody that regularly pulls you off course of what God's best is for your life because you cannot love as long as you are mastered by anyone or anything other than God. It's don't do anything that hurts you, don't do anything that hurts anybody else, and be mastered by nothing. Now, that is easy for me to say as I try so often to say, we're in this together. The playing field is level. I battle with this just as much, if maybe not more, than some of you. And for me, it's worse. Like, I know all this stuff. And it's like, God, why is this still a battle for me? So as I go through this list, though, the reason why is because there's a reason why it's called submission. <laughs> It wouldn't be called submission if it were easy. None of this is natural. And as I go through this list, I know what some of you have done because I've done it myself. Some of these, you, as you hear this list, you've thought of other people. Like, I'm so glad my husband or my wife is able to hear this message, or I'm calling my college son or daughter, and they need to listen to this online. And I wish so-and-so were here to hear this message, or I'm going to make sure to send them a link this week and Yet, isn't that the perspective of the people who have hurt you the most in your life? The people who claim to be Christians who found it so easy to judge and shed light on your shortcomings and sins and faults and failures. What if we just decided we would just love them a little extra and let God shape their heart? What if we decided whatever it takes to get into a place where I'm not hurting me any longer, I'm going to get there. I'm going to quit making excuses to not get counseling or invite somebody into my life. I'm going to get help. I'm going to confess. I'm going to break these habits. I'm not going to do anything that will hurt anyone else any longer by withholding love or by my words and deeds. And where I have, I'm going to confess. I'm going to own it. And where I'm hurting them and they don't know it yet, I'm going to confess. I'm going to get out the scalpel, and it's going to be a bit painful, but it's going to bring about healing. And I'm going to confront some people because by not confronting them, I've not loved them as I should because I've let them continue making destructive or harmful, not reflective of their faith in Jesus 
choices that somebody needs to confront, but I won't do it with a saw. I'll do it with a scalpel, and I'm not going to continue to hurt them by remaining silent anymore, and I'm not going to be mastered by anything. So to, to, to bring this series home, here's what it all boils down for us individually who I identify as a Jesus follower, as a disciple, and for us as a community, especially as we consider what's at stake, the next generation the future of the church, when the church leverages anything other than love, we ultimately lose our leverage. And we have lost our leverage in culture and in much of the world, and it is time for us to get it back by the forgotten way. Jesus led with love. He led with grace, which then gave them the ears to hear the truth. But it was love first. Just like before we ever did anything good, Jesus died for us. But many, many centuries ago, the church got power, control, wealth, and influence. And the ability to persuade politics and to influence legislation, which you need to hear me, are not bad things in and of themselves. But the problem is, once we had all those things, we abandoned love and we began to leverage something else. And we gave up the way of Jesus. And on that day, we lost. Once there was a handful of Jesus followers, a group of people who had no book, no literature, no influence, no publishing, no radio, no television, no podcast. They had nothing. But time after time after time, they stood on this simple idea, love one another as Jesus loved us. And as we interact with others who don't yet know about Jesus, to inspire them by what does love require of me? And we know from history, that is how culture was influenced. That is how a paganism, and I've been to the Mideast, that is how a paganism was overturned that we can't even imagine. It was turned upside down, not because of power or influence and status and wealth, but because they leveraged all they had. Love one another. And nobody felt coerced. They were drawn and inspired, drawn to the edge. Come and see. Nobody's going to push you in. Nobody's going to push you away. Come watch us love God. Watch us love one another. And if that ever characterizes my life and your life and the church in the United States of America, again, there will be leverage like we can't even imagine. Because you cannot preach people into loving Jesus. You cannot preach or legislate people into loving each other. You cannot preach or legislate people out of an addiction or a habit. You can't preach or legislate a husband to love his wife like Christ loved the church or children in the faith. None of this happens through preaching and legislation. It only happens when it's seen. So maybe we will be the generation who begins and is part of a, another great spiritual awakening in our city and in our country, transforming our city and our country by being a group of people driven by one core question in every interaction. What does love require of me? And today as we wrap up this series, just, this is like the perfect weekend to expect, experience and share in communion. Now some of you aren't familiar with communion. I'm going to ex- explain that. But communion is a remembrance of the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. And for just a few seconds, in just a second, Jonathan, um, I shared this several weeks ago because 
a lot of times when we think of Jesus and we hear, like, he died for me and there was a sacrifice, we've got, like, the glowy white Jesus of the 70s painting that was in all the homes and everything, you know, blue, blonde, blue-eyed Jesus, um, you know, all clean and shiny. And, and, like, it reminds, like, the sacrifice, that he died for our sins, that he was beaten. Like, it's just kind of here, but it would look more like this. That Jesus, knowing full well what was going to happen to him, you can go ahead and take it down, Jonathan. He walked into that for you and for me. And for people with no guarantee that they would ever respond or love him. So when we take communion, and he talks about his body and his blood like he meant it. I'd like to invite the band to come on up. Jesus freely offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin. And as we've just said repeatedly through this series, to understand what Jesus meant by what he said, we watch what he did. And Paul, in writing to a young church in the city of Corinth that he had planted and just trying to continue to pour into them and educate them, he was teaching them about communion because there was only a few people in that room that night. And he writes, For I received for the Lord what I also passed on to you. The, the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, This is my body, which is for you, and do this in remembrance of me. And then, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes back. And the thing that we can miss is that he said this to the group of individuals, one would betray him and the rest would abandon him in his moment of deepest need. And yet he loved them. And so, um, if you're a Jesus follower, you're just invited to be a part of this, I'm, I'm going to pray and then when you're ready, you can go, we've got stations uh, to my left and right. If you want to stay in your seat and pray a little bit and just process some things going on in your life that you just want to just get before God, uh, or if you want to get the elements and go off to the side or bring it back to your seat, however you want to do it, um, just get the cup, get the bread, and then when you're ready, you can take communion and um, Zan and the team will pay attention and when it's time, we'll, we'll have a closing song together. So let me pray. And then again, whenever you're ready, you can get elements and, and take communion. Father, you are, you transcend space and time. And yet you crammed all of you into a human body so that we might actually know you, which is what we want. We, we want to know you and we want to know that you know us and that you care about the circumstances of our life. But you demonstrate how for us you are because if somebody will die for us they are for us and Father we thank you for your willingness thank you for Jesus and it's confusing it doesn't all make sense like who sets this system up but it is our reality that we have broken relationship with you and you are willing to pay the price to build that bridge to reconcile us to you now in life after this life. So, Father, for those of us that are 
still struggling and wrestling to get our mind around that and to get to a point where our faith is pulling you. I pray for every individual that you would reveal yourself in whatever way is needed to give them the courage to take, to be able to take that step into just belief that then informs everything that follows. And for those of us that have put our trust in you, thank you for your patience, your grace, the mercy you show us every day. We're just like children. We're just constantly learning and making mistakes and having great joys. So this moment is for you. It's to recognize your son, Jesus. And it's in his name I pray all these things. Amen.